Major Lindsay and Africa presents Bouncing Back, conversations about resilience for lawyers. Welcome to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay and Africa, the global leader in legal search and consulting. I'm your host, Rebecca Glatzer. I'm a managing director in the associate practice group at Major Lindsay and Africa. In this podcast, you'll hear me speak to successful professionals about the hiccups, bumps, bruises, and setbacks they've experienced in their careers and personal lives. And you'll learn how they ultimately bounce back from those experiences to thrive. Today, my guest is Bendita Cynthia Malakia. Bendita is Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Hogan Lovells, one of the largest law firms in the world. In her role, Bendita works to transform the legal profession into an inclusive industry for women, minoritized persons, LGBTQIA, and disabled individuals can thrive. Prior to her time as a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional, Bendita spent seven years as an associate at international law firm Norton Rose Fulbright. Bendita also has prior in-house counsel experience at the International Finance Corporation, the private sector arm of the World Bank Group, as well as in the private wealth management group at Goldman Sachs. Bendita is secretary of the National LGBT Bar, a member of the Mansfield Rule Implementation Task Force, the Association of Law Firm Diversity Professionals, and the Social Impact Incubator for the Institute for Inclusion in the Legal Profession. Bendita is a graduate of Harvard Law School and Barnard College. Bendita, thank you for being my guest today. Absolutely, Rebecca. There's no one else that I would rather talk about this topic with. Thank you. Well, to get started, uh, I'm just going to start with a bang. Uh, In 2013, you had a harrowing experience. You were at Westgate Mall in Nairobi, Kenya, when it was taken over by terrorists. What happened? Sure. Um, In in 2013, I was um, on secondment to International Finance Corporation, and um, I was uh, only there at the time for a couple of months and uh, had elected to uh, have a lunch with an individual at another bank that someone had introduced me to. And about 10 minutes um, into us meeting, um, we heard some uh, loud noises that sounded like um, a car backfiring, having just come from DC, that's what I thought it was, Um, um, but were actually um, gunshots and some small bombs. um, And Everyone um, on this terrace of, of uh, at the mall, um, a restaurant called Art Cafe, um, fell to the ground. Uh, the person that I was with pulled me to the ground because I thought it was a car backfiring and didn't realize I was in um, real danger at that point. Um, uh, she uh, helped me to the ground and people started uh, trying to crawl in whatever direction they could um, as some individuals jumped on the ledge and, and started shooting um, people um, around me. Based on where I was, um, we needed to, uh, we ended up trying to go inside the mall. Um, and uh, there was, we made it about halfway into the, in the inside of the cafe. Um, and there was a lull in the shooting. Um, and I, um, hyper Americanized and, and, you know, personal property loving, stopped. And the first thing I thought of, honestly, was my stuff. My stuff is still on this patio. 
And I, um, you know, I looked at uh, my new colleague and I, I said, uh, I'm going to go get that bag. And um, she, you know, threw some expletives at me that I won't mention here. Um, and thankfully, um, she's, you know, she saved my life a few times um, that day. But that was probably the first time um, we got up, ran inside the mall. And my first instinct was um, to run to the right. Um, and then take the escalator all the way up to the top to be as far away from everybody as possible. Um, and um, I'm glad that I didn't because news later um, and some um, messages that were received um, from others who ended up hiding out in the mall um, with me were that um, uh, that the uh, terrorists um, attacked the building from multiple um, places and, and just about everybody on the top floor was killed. Um, yeah. So, so my survival instincts are poor. I think um, we ended up taking a left, and you know, uh, her view was we should hunker down as quickly as possible. Whatever we do, we shouldn't be wandering around the mall. We should find a place. We should kind of shelter in place and go there. And so, we ended up going into a store called Mr. Price. Um, I went back to the mall a few years after it no longer exists, um, but it was a home goods store. You know, kind of like a crate and barrel um, type of a store. And um, we ran to the farthest corner of the store. We uh, saw a door. We pushed the door. I thought it would lead outside, but instead it led to a small hallway with some, a couple of offices. Um, and, then, uh, and then we pushed another door and there was a small break room. And I was convinced that second door was going to lead outside, um, but it didn't. It just we somewhat hit the end of the road. And we were the first couple of people into that break room. Um, and we took a seat on the floor of the break room. And after about 17 or 18 people um, came into that room um, with us, um, there was a decision made pretty quickly to just shut the door and barricade the door because we realized that there being a break room, there was some food, there was some water. We didn't know what situation we were in. And um, if we needed to have resources, you, you start to become, unfortunately, uh, selfish. And so we sat there and um, and. Uh, it, all of us, I think, took a collective sigh and deep breath. And um, pretty quickly, we started developing some routines. And, you know, we, of course, had to make sure that everyone was going to be quiet. We spent time um, trying to teach uh, some of the older individuals who felt compelled to try to make phone calls how to text, um, because being quiet is, is necessary when you're trying not to be discovered or, or found. Um, yes. And we basically um, sat there listening to gunfire, gunshot um, uh, for um, many hours um, before we were uh, we ended up um, being released. Um, in the midst of that time, we heard um, an interaction with some individuals um, who had been hiding out in the above ours. Uh, so there was a gentleman. Uh, a, a little boy um, and a little girl and apparently um, their mother and they had been hiding out and were having some conversation and whispering and she was doing what mothers do, um, trying to keep them calm and engaged. Um, and unfortunately, um, their um, their hiding place was infiltrated. They asked them if they were Muslim. Um, they asked why uh, the mother uh, wasn't wearing a hijab. Um, and then the little boy started screaming and they shot the mother and the sister. Um, uh, and we got to hear all of that. Um, we heard lots of other screams and tussles and we're getting messages from, you know, other kind of family and, and friends. I didn't have any, but others did 
um, who were around the mall. Some people had managed to get out. Some people were stuck. Some people weren't being responsive to messages. And so um, it was just a, a very long, um, you know, six or seven um, hours where we were stuck in that area. Wow. Um, and for those who don't know um, about this terrorist attack, um, according to reports that I read, 70 people were killed um, and a close to 175 people were injured. Um, you know, obviously, you, you were one of the lucky ones. Um, and I'm, I, I, my heart's beating fast just hearing this story, Bendita. Like, I wasn't there. Um, I remember the news coverage at the time, um, but, you know, in, in passing, right? And uh, I feel stressed just hearing the story. And, and I'm wondering, um, you know, how, what happened in the ensuing hours? You were there for, well, let me back up a little bit. You were there for work, right? You were only supposed to be there for a couple of months. Was this towards the beginning of your stay in Nairobi or towards the end of it? I was actually set to be in Nairobi for a year and a half. Um, oh, I got into uh, Nairobi in uh, end of July in 2013. And um, this happened September. September. And so I had only been there for a couple of months. I was just getting my stride and, and really starting to enjoy myself and taking advantage of what um, Nairobi and the, the region um, had to offer. Um, and so this was really the beginning of my time. And so this was kind of the first time that I had decided, let me venture out and meet some folks that aren't affiliated with work. Let me, you know, try to do, you know, increase my uh, social presence and, and um, in Nairobi, so it was an unfortunate, uh, an unfortunate first experience. Yeah, indeed. Um, and so, what what was the conversation with yourself, you know, in the in the aftermath of this? Because I could imagine that you know your parents want you to probably get home. <laughs> uh, your loved ones probably were like, "Great that you're here for work, and you were supposed to be here for the rest of the year, but you know, get your butt back to the states." I mean, that, that would be my. <laughs> and that's precisely what, what ended up happening. I mean, I came back um, soon after. So I had lost all of my stuff. I lost all, lost all of my phones, my computers, my, um, you know, my iPad, um, my wallet. Um, and so I had lost all of those things in the in the attack. And and, and the entire thing was was relatively uh, traumatizing. So I also lost my passport. Um, and so and we ended up being rescued and we we left and there was a bunch of additional trauma that happened around there we were we were evacuated under gunfire um we i ended up using a candle holder that i bought earlier in the day as a shield it's now missing a piece because a bullet went through it um wow. when i got out when we finally made it outside we were tear gassed by uh, i don't know if it was kenyan police or some other police they wouldn't let us leave unless we had somebody to come vouch for us and so uh and i was there of course in this country alone and so i had to tell them that i actually was uh, an employee of another bank um, because my coworker had somebody there to come pick us up um and so the whole thing was a was an experience and and then and unfortunately my law firm at the time was very good about um, arranging kind of immediate transportation back home. I thankfully have uh, great friends in DC who are politically connected, who are able to get me um, a, a temporary passport um, really, really quickly, although uh, they needed money uh, to process it and I didn't have any money. 
I didn't have a bank right. card. I didn't have anything. Yeah. And so I literally spent, uh, you know, and so all of the processes over the next day to try to get back home um, were challenging. But about a day and a half after this event, I ended up coming back to the U.S. And um, at the time, my gut told me at first I was like, oh, I'm just I'll come back in a month or a couple of weeks or whatever it is. But my gut told me last minute um, with the advice of a friend who worked at the bank that I was at, you know, you may not want to come back. So just pack up all your stuff. You don't have that much stuff. And I did. And I literally put all of my stuff in trash bags. I gave it to um, the gentleman that's, that was my driver. Um, and he took it and left it at my uh, my friend's place. Um, and, you know, just in case I decided not to come back and I didn't end up going back. I went back a couple of years later. Um, but, you know, the, the entire time uh, that I was there during the event, um, I was thinking, you know, about how I was in this situation because I'm a striver. I had wanted to live somewhere else. I wanted to live abroad. I wanted to have this role that was going to be more expansive than the role I had before. I wanted to try something new. Um, and uh, and I wanted to have an interesting life. Uh, and this truly was interesting. Um, it might not be great, uh, but it was interesting. Um, and so- not boring, right? Definitely not boring. And so the entire time I was really thinking about how do I, you know, it's, um, how, what do I as an individual make of this experience? Like while I was going through it and, you know, I think, you know, at the end of the day, I have done, I, I, I always go for it and I, I went for it. And for that, um, it was worth it. It didn't, um, I, it might not have turned out the way that I wanted it to. Um, but the more important thing, it, it, I mentioned the story earlier about the uh, little uh, the, the family um, that was um, hiding out above us and, and that tragedy. And something happened for me in that moment. Um, hearing him scream after his mother and sister were shot. I mean, we basically were witnessing for several hours, a small family just, you know, you know, they're counting like things on the floor. They're singing songs to each other, right? Like we basically watched them interact in an abnormal situation, but as normally as, as the mother could manage. And then this blood curdling scream, something happened to me in that moment. Like I literally felt something sear through my brain. Like I, I felt like my brain was fundamentally changed from that moment. Um, and uh, what I realized in coming back uh, to the US uh, was that I, of course, would never be the same. It would be challenging for somebody to be the same after this type of an event, but that I was still going to pursue everything that I wanted to pursue with vigor but that that might mean something different. And the strengths and capacities that I had before may not still be there. And so, you know, I'm not sure I've really talked about this much with anyone actually ever. Um, but I, you know, that's the moment, I think, where I knew that I would probably not be practicing law in the long term. Um, and part of that's because my brain wiring just changed in a way that was so fundamental and that started to reveal itself to me slowly over time, um, uh, over time. And so as a result, I don't practice law anymore. I do other things. Um, I do appreciate that I have more intuition now than I ever did before, although I am less linear um, and uh, than I was before. Uh, and I'm less fact based than I was before. A goes to B goes to C wasn't necessarily my default way of thinking anymore. And it's not that I did anything 
specific or affirmative to make that happen. I think my brain chemistry just changed and I have no scientific or medical um, uh, justification for believing that. But um, on the basis of, of knowing and understanding myself over time, that's how it was. And I ended up becoming a more intuitive person. My gut became stronger. I was able to make more connections between unconnected things and, and disconnected things. And I think that was the moment where I realized um, that the standards um, that the law sets and the way that the law is practiced, um, I might not be able to do that as well anymore, even though I have this whole other set of skills um, now that lend me to do lots of other things. Right. That makes that makes complete sense. And just for our listening audience and, you know, anybody can Google Bendita or look her up on LinkedIn and understand her background, but I just want to put a little finer point on this for those of you who are lawyers who are listening and have been very linear in your um, past. You know, Benita went to the Women's College for Columbia, Barnard, very good school. She went to Harvard Law School. She clerked uh, at a very big firm, ultimately, um, you know, taking a job at Norton Rose, um, you know, in, in finance and uh, emerging markets and then does well enough to get a secondment um, with the division of the World Bank, which puts her in Nairobi, Kenya, when the terrorists uh, attacked Westgate Mall. And then you hear people being murdered above you and it changes the way you look at your life, which, um, you know, that makes a lot of sense, I think, of, as an outsider looking at lesser things would make people reevaluate um, your life, I, you know, in thinking about this, because we're talking about resilience. Um, I feel like I have PTSD just from hearing the story. <laughs> um, my heart is still pounding to my chest as I talk to you right now. And I'm, you know, we're talking about careers and you joked earlier that you were like, oh, my bag, I got to go get my laptop and my phone, right? And your friends. <laughs> you know, Isn't that and, insane? Oh, no. Like, we need to get out of here. I, the, the stuff can, you can get another phone. You can't get another life, right? Um, right. And I'm sitting here wondering, you know, from, from, the, from the moment this happens until you put feet on solid ground in the U.S. and you get home, right, I would imagine that that is a fight or flight response and you are just trying to, like, put one foot in front of the other. But then you get home, right? back to normalcy, I'm using bunny right now because nothing's normal. How do you process that experience? Like mentally, how do you, like aside from the job, um, you know, I would have PTSD from that. Um, you know, how do you mentally function when you, you know, you, you, you've gotten home, you're in the U.S., you know, you're, you know, how, how can one carry on business as usual, I guess, is my question for you. How did you function in that moment? I didn't very well. I mean, there were so many parts of this experience that were traumatizing. I mean, even after we were rescued, I mentioned some of the incidents that happened between being tear gassed and, and other things. And even when I got on the plane, looking for um, perpetrators of the event for every flight. And so everybody was looking at each other like, or you're getting on this flight, were you one of the people who bombed the mall, right? And so um, the, the whole, uh, and, and there was a whole incident around, um, around the plane being late, there being a gas spill. Um, so it took about four hours or so before my flight actually 
um, took off in a way that made me very anxious um, and that really stoked um, my uh, my anxiety. When I landed in the UK where, where I had a layover, um, I was interviewed and intercepted um, by British police who were telling me that I wouldn't be able to get on my next flight unless I had an, I was interviewed. Um, you know, there were there were all sorts of things that happened that made this whole thing extremely um, traumatizing. And by the time I got back to the U.S., you know, my mother had done all of this kind of uh, in a desire to help try to rescue me um, or get me rescued or raise some attention to what was happening. Um, you know, there were press who were there when I landed um, and I had ended up having to do a press interview. Um, and it, so when I got back, I couldn't really process much. I couldn't really, it was really hard for me to engage with reality. So much of it feels really present and so much of it also feels completely absent. Um, my then girlfriend lived uh, in uh, Arizona and uh, I basically decided at some point that I was just going to go to Arizona for uh, several weeks and I was there for something like six to eight weeks. And I don't really remember my time in Arizona much, except for that I did a lot of Bikram yoga. Um, I videoed in on some hip hop belly dance classes from DC. And I basically wandered around without shoes in Tempe, Arizona, drinking with random people on their porches, going to Target. I didn't have shoes half the time. Like, there's a period of time that's really lost to me. Um, mm -hmm. And um that's completely a blur um and uh you know i think really i've always been a that valued working um whether that was um vis-a-vis -vis being a student or in a professional workplace and so for me the thing that kind of you know got me recentered because i'm such a career focused person was to kind of get back to dc and get back to work um and yeah. But what that meant was, you know, trying to go through the motions. People, you know, there are all the politics around my um, returning back um, to work and the fact that I wasn't in Nairobi anymore, I was in DC. Um, and is that an appropriate thing for me to be doing? And, um, and people not really knowing how to interact with me or how to be with me. My brain was changing um, and changing significantly. Um, and so even though my emotions about things didn't really change and I didn't necessarily have a different um, perspective, the way my brain operationalized information, consumed information, deployed information was just completely different. Um, and that made it really challenging for me in the context of my, my personal relationship in ways that didn't become apparent to me over time. So I ended up getting married subsequently. Now we're divorced. She's still my best friends all over Christmas. Um, but there's so much about the way my brain has changed and and other changes that that were happening that I couldn't really pinpoint um, over yeah. time um, because and that where I had to really relearn who I am and what I care about. Um, and that yeah. was really important to me. And and uh, also recognizing and I haven't didn't really recognize it much until about a year ago or some maybe at some point during early 2020, that I have an incredible amount of anxiety. And I think it was always existing low level. And, and it's really come to the fore after, um, after you know, the Westgate incident. Um, a lot of anxiety about a lot of things. Um, and it causes, I'm able to leverage my anxiety to mostly work for me. 
Um, it means I wake up really early in the morning. It means I work a lot. It means I care about excellence. Um, and thankfully, I've been given enough leeway from the people I work with um, such that, you know, my, all of my anxieties play out in a way that tends to make me more successful in what I do. Um, but they also drive other people crazy um, sometimes. And they also, um, you know, and, and it also provides this kind of low level pressure um, that you have a, an insecurity about the world. And so that insecurity, I think, is definitely born from uh, from the Westgate um, incident. Um, and but really thinking about when major life events happen, whether it's a divorce or even a marriage, um, having children, um, if you move, if you get laid off, I mean, the pandemic, any of these things um, are significant enough that each and every one of us should be able to step back and say, first and foremost, um, I am a person in this world, a thinking, feeling human being. And as a human being, I experience things and I am impacted when things happen that are on, rooted in hate, uh, when things happen um, uh, in the world, even if they're not rooted in hate, that, that are fundamental, each of us experiences them. And we ought to, number one, give ourselves grace um, and accept that we are people who can be impacted um, by the world, whether in the context of our workplace or not. Um, and um, that we ought to give ourselves some grace for processing um, what's happening and allow ourselves enough room to be to grow and learn who are we now that this thing has happened. There are so many things that are happening right now in our world, um, whether it's you know the the uh, incredibly fraught race relations, whether it's um, a society where we have a coup and a transition of power, hopefully going forward peaceful, um, where we have macroeconomic shifts and a real health crisis that's demonstrating a lot of inequities in our society. We should be changed, and it's important for us to recognize that um, that and to um, accept that, and to really think about in the context of what I know now and who I am. Who do I want to be? Um, and to know that as individuals, we have the right to choose who we want to be at any given point in time. Now, what that looks like um, may be circumstantial. Some of us have more privilege than others, um, but it's just to know that we ought to give ourselves grace. Um, for being flexible and what comes after the tragedy. Amen. Amen. Agreed. And uh, we, you and I have had some discussions about this and what is resilience and what does it look like? And is it a word that's maybe overused? I'll frankly, you know, had some debate myself in terms of naming this podcast, right? Keeping it short and sweet. And at the same time, um, struggling myself with what resilience means and you said so many, there's so many nuggets of good in what you've been saying, Bendita, um, and, and just again, drive some things home. I mean, and I think what you're saying, and I want you to correct me if I'm not paraphrasing accurately here, um, is there's got to be room for being human, right? There's got to be room for being human regardless of what we do. And if one is in an environment um, whether that be law or some other profession that doesn't allow you to be human and to experience life's events in whatever form they make good, bad, or ugly, um, you know, you got to look at that, right? And you've got to look at, you know, how are my colleagues, how are the people that surround me um, creating space for being human? Um, and you decided after this experience, like, something, something's got to got to give. Um, is that right? Would, would you say that's an accurate depiction of what you've just said? 
Absolutely right. So many of us spend an incredible number of, of our waking hours and our lives in the context of our work environments, whether it's practicing law or being law adjacent um, or law supportive. And somehow we seem to think that whatever happens outside of the walls of the law firm or the, the whatever the workspace or work environment is, um, that that we should be unchanged in that environment. Um, and it's just, we, humans don't really have the capacity to do that. And and do we want to? Um, having empathy, um, understanding that we grow and change, being human um, is really what we're all here to do. People practice law because they um, want to make a difference, whether it's because you practice finance law or because you are, are, are advocating for indigent people, right? Uh, you know, we all do this because um, there is there is something bigger than ourselves um, that we care about. But in order to bring ourselves to that fully, we need to allow ourselves um, to be to be who we are. To, and, and that means we need to understand who we are and then we need to make a decision if that's the person that we we want to be. Um, you know, I don't I don't fault you for for calling the podcast uh, for using the term resilience in the podcast. It's um, it's a frequent term that's used. I, I have a love hate relationship with it, as you know. Um, I think that oftentimes um, terms like resilience and grit um, uh, really try to refocus us um, to um, how is this individual deficient um, and where do how do they need to uh, bend themselves, adjust themselves, modify themselves. Um, and as a coach, um, yeah, I truly believe that uh, individuals matter. Um, each of our choices matters. Who are we to be? Um, matters, um, but it also neglects the fact that there are systems um, that are set up um, that in certain cases, no amount of resilience is going to be able um, uh, to thwart. Um, and right. so we just need to make sure that we are we are um, realistic um, and not putting an undue burden on individuals to be superhuman, um, to use extraordinary powers to overcome a system that they didn't have a shot at or a realistic or probable shot at overcoming um, in the first place. Absolutely. Amen. Um, so I could talk to you for hours about this and I have so many questions, but I want to, you know, eye on the prize, Rebecca. So, um, can you walk us through or would you walk us through um, kind of, you know, how you get from boots on the ground, you're working for Norton, you're trying to navigate this secondment from afar and what to do next. And, you know, you're ha now head of DNI uh, many years later um, at Hogan Lovell. So you're, again, law adjacent. <laughs> you're working for a law firm but in a different capacity. And I'm just interested if you would sort of share that journey. I realize it took, you know, place over years. But, you know, for our listening audience, like, how did you come to be, what was the sort of not just the kind of physical jumps or, you know, this job to this job to this job, but I'm interested in like your thinking um, on this, you know, you, you went to Goldman Sachs next. What, what was your thinking in terms of leaving Norton and going to that job? And then, you know, and then kind of whole cloth kind of moving into the, the DNI work. Absolutely. So uh, a lot of questions there, and these are questions that I hear um, a lot because um, a lot of times people go into the law, um, maybe not for the right reasons or not necessarily understanding what they're getting themselves into. I, I do believe that um, being a lawyer is one of um, is one of uh, 
best ways that we can contribute to society. And so my having shifted um, is not necessarily a mark on the uh, on the profession. Um, I when I started at Norton Rose, so I've been a coach for a long time. Uh, my most recent um, certification round was, I think, in 2016, 2017. But um, as a result, I knew that when I started at the large law firm um, that every job you should have you should understand what your exit strategy is, especially jobs where you're in particular well-paid. And thankfully, um, on the basis of what I knew when I left law school, I think I was, was relatively well-paid. Um, and you need to understand what are the circumstances under which I should leave, right? You don't want to be subject to those golden handcuffs. Um, and so I had decided on two metrics. Um, the first was that I wanted to understand how money works, right? I come from, you know, poor folks, um, well-educated, but poor folks, um, I, you know, folks who didn't necessarily understand, um, you know, everything about how some of these complex financial systems work. And I really couldn't, when I started practicing law, answer the question, how do you pay for things that you just can't pay for cash outright? Right. I mean, I knew loans existed, but like I just didn't really know. And so for me, one of my goals was to make sure that I really understood that. Um, you know, how do people pay for things that they can't afford outright? Um, the second goal was to pay off my student loans. Um, first goal I met about three years in. The second goal I met um, about, you know, seven or eight months after my time at International Finance Corporation ended. Um, and within about a month or so, I put in my notice um, and uh, had uh, identified an opportunity to do private lending at Goldman Sachs. And so I went to Goldman Sachs to do private lending. I didn't really know a whole lot about it. Um, you know, in my mind, it was advising wealthy people on wealthy people things on how to buy wealthy thing, you know, things, you know, um, you know big boats, you know, and in my head, because trust in the states is like my favorite class in law school, because it's tabloid law. Um, you know, you leave you leave your cat, you know, $3 million and your kids, you know, have to eat off the floor like it's just tabloid stuff. Um, sort of market, kind of. <laughs> exactly. And as a, a Real Housewives of Everywhere fan, I was a fan of that. Um, I ended up, uh, uh, you know, I, I ended up basically um, joining that uh, team out of Texas and decided pretty quickly that in the landscape where there was, um, where Trump started to become a candidate um, and with everything happening in the world, that it just wasn't sexy enough to overcome my desire to make a change. And I was lucky um, in that over time, from the time I was at Norton Rose Fulbright to um, even at, at IFC, um, where I was um, part of the group that worked on a project that had its first diversity KPI through the World Bank, um, through um, just independent efforts that I took at Goldman Sachs and their Texas offices, um, that I had enough kind of breadcrumbs to put together um, where I felt like I understood what diversity and inclusion might be, and I felt drawn to that. I paid off my student loans, uh, my partner. Um, made a decent salary. We were then married. Um, and, you know, she said, well, why don't you do something that you're really passionate about? Take a year, figure it out and do. And pretty quickly, I realized diversity was the thing that I wanted to do. And so I set out my own diversity consultancy. The first few months are really rough, really rough, really rough. No idea what I was getting into as, a, a, as an independent uh, business owner. But after a while, I, I got my my, um, I hit my stride. I took on some projects that um, really allowed me to see the landscape. And what I realized after about a year or so in um, was that while I liked, um, I love diversity, um, there were some things that weren't happening in the context of a consultancy that I really felt like I needed um, to uh, make real progress, um, including 
um, you know, the perspective and the, 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 the politics and the relationships that you start to understand in one organization that really make a difference with respect to diversity and inclusion. So I started thinking, um, and I found my uh, then next boss um, at a conference um, and uh, they had an open position. Um, and, you know, the process went pretty quickly and that happened to be at Hogan Levels. And I joined uh, a little over three and a half years ago as a manager um, for the Americas. And over the last couple of years, I've uh, worked my way up to being the global head of diversity and inclusion, um, uh, handling our diversity efforts for um, our 45 plus offices um, around the world. And so I'm really honored and delighted to have taken that journey. I learn something new every day. My team teaches me new things um, every single day. And I'm just lucky that I've been able to use all of my experiences, including the empathy um, and honed anxiety that I've um, gotten um, from the terrorist attack experience to make me uh, not just a better human being, but a better a diversity professional um, and just an overall better person. Wound anxiety, I'm stealing that term. <laughs> That's going to be my new like mantra. Well, anxiety can either thwart you, you know, or it can, or you can hone it and try to purge it. And you know, there are days and times where um, my anxiety is not as uh, under control and, and or under my control, it's controlling me, um, you know, but I think it's something for us to think about, not to be ashamed of the fact that our brains work and our emotions work a certain way, um, but just to figure out, you know, how can we manage it? And when we can't manage it, just to take some, give ourselves some grace. Absolutely. Um Last big question, because uh, we, we've we've actually even gone over the time that I uh, allotted for this. And I, I talk so too much. Great. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, you don't. Just you know, you've got great things to say, and I don't want to stop you. And I'm enthralled, and I could probably do this for five more hours, but I won't because we both have other things to do. But um, you know, as we, as you well know, because you work, you know, you're a lawyer, formerly practicing attorney, and you work for a law firm. Um, you know, the last year and some change has been really rough for a lot of, of um, you know, in particular young attorneys, right, who maybe don't have the context of, you know, 2008 and the Great Recession and, you know, God forbid, a terrorist attack to prepare them for what happened in 2020. I'm being a little facetious here, but not, um, I, you know, I've gotten a lot of, you know, frustrated and upset phone calls over the last year about, you know, what do I do? I'm getting laid off. I'm getting furloughed. I'm getting, you know, you know, I don't have childcare. I have to fire my childcare because of this or that or whatever. Um, and I'm, I, what, this is a big question. And I realize, again, I'm only giving you a little bit of time to answer, but I'm interested in your initial thoughts. What advice do you have for young fledgling, you know, first year, second year, third year, fourth year attorneys who maybe don't have, you know, some sort of, larger context to fall back on some, you know, they, they've never had an experience, everything's been linear, as you called it, um, up until now, and then 2020 happened um, with all of its tumult. Um, you know, what, what advice would you give to these young attorneys? That if life has been linear for them to date, good for them. Life will never be completely linear. It's rarely linear for everyone. Um, there will always be a bump in the road. Um, life will throw you a curveball. And keeping your mind and heart open about what that means um, is uh, really, really, really important. No event in and of itself is good or bad. Um, I like the person that I am today more than the person who walked into Westgate Mall in 2013. Um, I know myself better. Um, I go for it. 
I live my values every day. Um, and these are all just, you know, everything that happens and things will happen. It's not it's not whether they will or won't. They will. Um, and, and when they happen, it's about keeping an open mind about what they mean, accepting the learning and growth um, opportunity um, and realizing that just because it doesn't happen today, it doesn't mean that it can't happen tomorrow and that your life is your life. No one's going to care about your life more than you do. Um, and, you know, continue to continue to go for it. Um, and sometimes a little bit of strategy is involved. It may not work today, um, but with a little bit of thought and planning, it might work um, down the line. And so just keep at it. Um, have faith in yourself. You are more than capable um, and uh, you will uh, you will get through it. Nothing is too hard um, when you dedicate um, your heart and your soul um, and your intellect uh, to it. And so just, you know. Stay afloat. I see too many law students who reach out to me who are really scared and depressed. Um, they don't want to work for a large law firm or they don't. They're worried about working too many hours or they're worried about um, about never being able to see their family or they're worried about paying back their student loans or, you know, all of these are opportunities to innovate. Um, and and you should look at it from from that perspective. Thank you for listening to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. Join us next time for another story about thriving after overcoming challenges. You can find Bouncing Back and other programming for lawyers on MLA's Legal Talk Network.